Turn with me again to the Gospel of Mark this morning. I'll read from chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. This is the second time we're looking at these uh, verses together. We'll consider that it's a little bit more thematically than than last time. Um, But again, considering the crucifixion uh, of our Lord. So hear God's holy word as it's read here from Mark 15, beginning in verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place called the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. The scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. We'll end our reading there this morning. Owen, my son Owen, shared with me a few weeks ago a paradox. I assume he heard it at school. Um, and I, I looked it up later, and it's, it's actually a fairly well-known paradox. Um, interestingly, an 11-year-old son of a philosopher came up with it um, several decades ago. And it's commonly known as the Pinocchio Paradox. And it goes like this. What if Pinocchio were to say, my nose will grow now? Think about it. What if Pinocchio were to say, my nose will grow now? If he's speaking the truth, that cancels the possibility that his nose would grow. Because it only grows when he tells a lie, which turns his statement into a lie, which means his nose would grow, but that would turn his statement true again. And if Pinocchio was meaning to speak truthfully, his nose would not grow, but that would turn his statement true, which would mean that his nose would not grow, or it would grow. I think I stated that wrong, but it's, anyways, uh, what do you think would happen? Maybe you can discuss that over some chili later. I think Pinocchio's nose would just break if he said that. But the point is, it's a good example of a, a paradox. It seems that both things can't be true. Pinocchio can't say this, and his nose grow. We're looking again this week at at the cross of Christ. 
a great paradox in itself, if there ever was one. It was the, the best event in history. It was the worst event in history uh, at the same time. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who uh, is, is an uh, incredible thinker and writer, he had some, certainly some, con- some confusions, at least, about, about uh, Christian faith, but he describes its paradox as a savior who would not save himself. A king with no visible kingdom, an immortal God who died so mortals could gain eternal life. Weakness as power, foolishness as wisdom. Well, Christianity is, is in one sense full of such paradoxes. I want to consider the chief paradox of the Christian life this morning, which the cross points us to, which is that at the same time the Christian life is defined by victory and joy and peace And at the same time, it's defined by suffering. Uh, We have victory over sin and death now. We we yet still face death and struggle with sin. We have peace and comfort in the cross. And yet the cross is a call to and a pattern for the Christian life to suffer with Christ. So consider first on, on your, as you see on your outline there, the call of the cross to willing Suffering. This is Jesus' pattern and promise. The New Testament makes clear that Jesus' willing suffering, his dying for what's right, for the glory of God, the plan of God, is a pattern for you who follow Christ. Think about the, the key taunt of Jesus while he's on the cross that we read again this morning. Save yourself. Right? That's, that's basically what it, it boils down to. Prove that you're the Son of God. Prove that you're a king, that you have power, that you've been sent by God to accomplish something. They, they suppose that the, the one obvious thing that would prove all of that, that Jesus was doing a great work of God, was that he could at least save himself. But, but Jesus' mission and his obedience, of course, are, are actually precisely seen in the opposite of saving himself. They're seen in his refusal to resist the will of God, this, this suffering, in his rejection of self-preservation. It's seen in his willing suffering for others as a sacrifice for sin. The, the taunting surely was, a, was one of the great temptations that Jesus faced because, as he said himself in other Gospels, he could have called down 72,000 angels and gotten right out of this. It's really the same temptation as he faced in the wilderness with Satan. Right? Multiple of Satan's temptations were, Jesus, you can take the easy way. Right? Why are you starving? Turn this stone into, blood, into bread. You, know, you, you can rule now. You don't have to go the hard way. It's what Jesus wrestled with in Gethsemane the night before this. Father, is, is there another way? And until Jesus comes again and sets all things right, until sin and death are, are completely banished, this is what discipleship in, in many parallels looks like for you. Right? It looks like a willingness to suffer for what's right. Uh, maintaining trust in, in your heavenly father, no matter what he allows in your life. Uh, choosing what is good and right, even when it hurts, even when it's not the easy way. Uh, it looks like rejecting our wills and choosing his will. Uh, that's Jesus' pattern for your life. It's also Jesus' clear, explicit expectation and teaching For those who would follow him. That the life of the Christian will be marked by suffering. How many times did he promise something like that to his disciples? He said, in the world you will have what? You will have tribulation. Uh, 
Uh, Matthew 24, he explained to his disciples they would be hated, uh, dragged in front of rulers, imprisoned, even killed. Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the persecuted. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, he said. Uh, his, his call to discipleship, Jesus describes in terms of taking up your cross, dying to self, uh, giving up everything, losing your life, being willing even to have your own family turn against you, and, and many more expectations throughout the New Testament. This is Jesus' pattern in teaching. I want, secondly, to draw your attention to two, two things that illustrate that this is the nature of discipleship in this account here. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly that these are illustrations of discipleship, but I'm, I'm convinced that it's at least a very fair illustration and comparison to draw, if not actually intended by Mark for us to see that, as, as I think it is intended by the Holy Spirit. First, look at verse 21, where it says simply, they, they pressed into service. This is as they're, they're walking to the place of crucifixion. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, Simon of Cyrene is in Africa, North Africa. Uh, this is where Simon's from. We know nothing else about him. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament or in church history. Uh, it's interesting, though, Mark, Mark goes on to mention his sons. He clearly has an expectation that his readers, and it's generally understood that Mark is writing to the Roman church, writing to the Romans, that they know Rufus and Alexander. And he's saying this is their dad. Um, so that's an, an interesting point, at least. And, and years later, uh, Paul is writing to the Romans, and as he's wrapping up his letter in Romans 16, he mentions Rufus. Um, very probably, I suppose, the same person uh, in, the, in the church of Rome there. Um, and so it seems that Simon and, and his sons somehow be, were or became disciples of Jesus. Maybe this event had something to do with that. Um, it was common to have the prisoner to be executed, to carry their cross, not the entire cross, but the cross beam, uh, the, the horizontal beam uh, to the place of execution. It's also not surprising given the nature of the flogging and what that was that we read of a couple weeks ago, uh, that Jesus was unable to do that. And so Simon was perhaps somewhat randomly uh, forced into service to carry that for him. But here's what I want to note, that it becomes a striking illustration of what it means to follow Jesus. I think back earlier, in, about halfway back in the gospel in chapter 8, where Jesus described, in his own words, what it means to follow him is taking up your cross and following. And when we, when we came to that chapter many months ago, whenever that was in, in chapter 8, I noted that that saying... Carrying your cross or your cross to bear has been adopted um, and, and uh, cheapened in our, our popular culture. It's, it's a common phrase. People refer to some annoyance in their life, you know, a pesky neighbor or a weight problem or a mean boss or whatever, and say, yeah, it's my cross to bear. Right? But the cross was not, on Jesus' lips, not, and in, that, in that day, not a symbol of annoyance or inconvenience. Right? It was a symbol of death, the, the death of the purpose person. Uh, discipleship by Jesus' description is dying to self, dying to what you want and what, what is simply comfortable or happy or fun and choosing what is right and good and glorifying to God, even in suffering, even to the point of dying. 
And so Simon here is literally carrying a cross, literally following Jesus on the road. Pointing to the fact, I think, that that, what Jesus said about discipleship is not just a saying. It's not just Christianese. Bear your cross. It's a concrete reality and necessity. As it is here in a literal way in in this story. It comes to life in real ways. Right? Carrying your cross means willingly accepting mocking of your faith in loyalty to your Savior. It means rejecting anger and bitterness in, in yourself and choosing patience and love. It means we don't begrudgingly endure the realities and responsibilities of life in serving Christ, in, in showing hospitality or enduring sickness or changing diapers and washing dishes and, and so on. It's, it's all done in willing trust and even joy and service to our Savior. The, the monotonous, the, the painful, and the joys in life. And we expect it to be hard. I think it's another acting out of the, the doctrinal meaning of all of these events. We saw that with, uh, for one thing, with um, Barabbas. Right? Jesus, the innocent trading places with the guilty as an illustration of what Jesus was doing on the cross. Here's the other one I want you to see this morning. Look at verse 27, where it simply says, they crucified two robbers with him. And and there's much more about this in the other Gospels, but this is all Mark says. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. I want you again to think back earlier in the Gospel. What was the request of the brothers James and John of Jesus? Right, wasn't it that they would have the, the best place, the place of honor? They would be there, in their words, right on Jesus' right and his left. And they didn't yet remotely understand Jesus' pattern, his call to suffering and humility and servant leadership. When they asked that, to, the call to take up their cross. So Jesus warned them when they asked, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he said, you don't know what you're asking for. Right? Do you know what, what honor is in my kingdom? Do you know where that comes from? Do you know what it costs? And so fast forward to this this pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, this revealing of his kingdom, and and this is the only time in the Gospels where we're told this is who is on Jesus' right and on his left. And what's there? It's death. Crosses. And again, I'm pointing this as an illustration. Uh, These men aren't there because they were disciples of Jesus. But one does come to faith. You read about that in Luke 23 later, if you like. You know, James 1 tells us to count our trials as joy because God is at work in them uh, for our good. For that one criminal who, who was facing the worst possible suffering along with Jesus, dying on a cross, that became for him God's providence, that he was there next to the Savior of the world to speak with him. And, and to recognize him in his suffering and, and to come to salvation for all eternity. Anyway, it's another illustration of the fact that the call, to, the call of Jesus is, is a call to die, to suffer. The cross and the Christian life that follows is, is a paradox. Power through weakness, life through death, uh, wisdom and foolishness. It's a paradox that trips many people up. Uh, I can't get past it. it. It trips up and misguides, I think, even many professing Christians. I mean, certainly every Christian, to some degree, struggles to come to grips with that reality. But 
I want to address that in the next two points you see on your outline there with, with two questions. Are you embarrassed by this call? Are you perhaps distracted from this call? And I'm, I'm spinning this off of the way Paul later um, describes the paradox of the cross and how it trips people up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a well-known statement of Paul where he says, The cross uh, is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Right? They can't get past this. The, the Jews, they're, they're not atheists or pagans. They believe in the Messiah. They hope in the Messiah. But a Messiah who died, they can't get past that. Right? And, and the Gentiles, very similarly, a king, a savior, a son of God who was crucified, who was condemned and defeated in the most shameful uh, way possible in the Roman Empire, that's just stupid. What, what kind of a divine savior is that? This is how Paul describes the, the wisdom and power of the cross. So first, are you embarrassed by this call? Do, do you perhaps identify with the Jews in, in being a bit embarrassed by the fact that the Christian life, and, and as Jesus said and patterned, is defined and shaped by suffering? Is your life shaped more by pursuing what is comfortable, pursuing stuff or respect or health and so on, more than by by Pursuing faithfulness, whatever the cost. That's not to suggest the Bible would have us seek out suffering and pain or shun medicine or pillows or fun um, or not to minister in Jesus' name to those who are suffering. That's, that's a, a, a significant part of serving Christ and alleviating suffering. But we enjoy, and we enjoy many gifts, and, and there's nothing wrong with mitigating the effects of the fall. But, but what shapes your life? What shapes your faith? What drives it? Another way to ask is, what, what is Jesus for? How do you view or use your relationship with God? To, to put, a, a, put it to a practical question, in prayer, do you more readily run to God and say, take away my pain, fix this problem, fix this relationship, take away this disease, whatever it is, or do you first and more readily ask for patience, for willingness to suffer with Christ? For growth and trust in God's plan and, and confession of your sin. And in other words, and there's nothing wrong with the first set of prayers, Lord, take away these pains, but, but do you view your relationship with God as a sort of cosmic vending machine of grace for a more comfortable, prosperous, easy Christian life? That's often the way we pray. First, for the healing, for the money needed, for the job, or whatever it is. Or do you see it primarily as a source of grace for faithfulness? and endurance, becoming like Jesus for patience till he comes again. That's how Jesus prayed for you. That's how we find Paul primarily praying for the the people he writes to. I've quoted before uh, sociologist Philip Reith, uh, who's not a Christian, I I think he was a Jew, um, but but commented somewhat famously on on present-day American Christianity uh, being marked by people going to church to feel happy, to be made to feel good. Whereas he observes that it seems to him that it used to be people went to church to have their ministry misery explained to them, as he says. To, to understand suffering, rather than to try to escape it, be distracted from it. Two weeks ago, I got in the mail here at the church, a, unsolicited, a, a book, um, it was a, a good-sized book, a couple hundred pages at least. Um, and it was all about how to access the power of God for your life. 
in a certain way, and it sadly reflects a large segment of, of Americans. It was not about how to access the power of God for faith or for faithfulness, endurance, for sanctification. It was about how to heal diseases, how to prosper, how to be successful, how to overcome poverty and problems, outwardly, tangibly, physically, how to uh, access the power of God, as it said. And in all the chapters are all these, these keys, these secret methods for overcoming suffering. The Christian's relationship to God is viewed as a way to get physical and economic power and progress, really, in, in the world. If you just believe in the right way, if you just pray in the right way, if you, if you use this key and, and turn it, you can be successful, you can be healed, you can uh, get what you want and heal other people. And uh, This is not what Jesus promised or demonstrated. Yes, Jesus healed people, a few people in a very brief window of time for very specific purposes. It's not what he just promised to his people. And, and sadly, it destroys the example and expectation and gospel of Jesus. What it's for. It, it turns Jesus into a sort of help, self-help genie uh, for comfort. Outwardly. And I would suggest that that book, that perspective, takes on the very perspective of the tormentors of Jesus on the cross. Surely suffering can't be the will of God. If, if you just have enough faith, if you pray the right prayer, if you understand the keys to unlock the secret power of God, then you can have what you want. You can come down from the cross. It's easy. This attitude can leak into any of our expectations or prayers. It, it reflects again that that Attitude of the Jews, as Paul described, right? The cross was a stumbling block. They were ashamed of the idea of a suffering Messiah who calls his people to willing suffering, to humility, to repentance. Um, even as we know the love and grace of God, we know we have resurrection life and eternity. Secondly, are you distracted from this call? Uh, fairly closely related to the previous point uh, here, but, but thinking now in terms of what Paul said about the Gentiles, the cross is just foolishness. And, and maybe in, 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 in our terms, it, suffering is a waste of time. It's a lost opportunity. Right? It seems like a hindrance to actually doing and accomplishing something. I see that in myself when I, when I play the part of a whining victim rather than a willing sufferer. And, and in my life, I'm not talking about the kind of suffering that many of you have endured. But just in everyday things, when I want to complain about other people or the struggle and monotony of life or intense challenges in my calling or frustrations with parenting, and I, I somehow think and act as if I'm above the pattern and the call of Jesus, entitled to comfort, rather than seeing these things as, as the very call of Christ himself, the very means of Jesus to make me more like him, to share in his sufferings. I, I see them as obstacles to doing what I really want to be doing and getting something done and how I really want to be feeling. Uh, I was reading a, a little while back a book by Oz Guinness, if any of you are familiar with him, who um, gives an example, I think a very good example, of, of what I'm talking about writ large on, on American Christianity. He laments the way the church has desired public influence and power and, and has pursued that through a particular 
political party and particular methods over against, he says, Jesus' call and example, uh, adopting a secular strategy of blaming and playing the victim to gain influence and power. He writes this, shame on such a deliberately chosen strategy, a strategy of victim playing, should be unthinkable for followers of Christ. Put simply, it's factually misleading, morally hypocritical, politically ineffective, and psychologically dangerous. Worst of all, it is unfaithful, a deliberate and outright denial of Jesus' teaching and call to suffering and rejection. That's what we should expect to be as, as the church. Not that we seek it out again. He goes on, have these Christian leaders no shame. Let them scour the New Testament from beginning to end. They will not find one single line to justify the politics of anxiety and resentment that have characterized much of their stand in public life. I think it's worth reflecting. Why why is the church growing like wildfire in China and Africa Places differently than what we see here, in places where outwardly it's persecuted far beyond what, what we experience. I think there could be many answers to that question, some answers we, we can't know, but it seems to me that it could at least be in part that, that many believers in other places are not playing the part of a whining victim, but are boldly forced into, they're forced into, but they're boldly suffering for Christ with a bold witness to the lordship and victory of Christ, whatever their circumstances. I think maybe the lesson could be for us to stop embracing the pattern of anxious whining about leftist politics or whatever it is and embrace Christ's call to victory through suffering. Secondly, finally, more briefly on on your outline there, I want to consider the call of the cross to faithful dying. Death on, Jesus' death on the cross conquered death. Death no longer is the last word for those in Christ. They purchased forgiveness and eternal life. Uh, but until he returns, death remains a reality. It remains the ugliest and the hardest part of suffering in this world. Right, the hardest part of the, that paradox of the Christian life is perhaps that, that life still ends in death. Though we know it continues, that, that we have eternal life, that it begins life with God, yet we still experience death. And so I want to just very briefly consider with you how the cross points us to faithfully dying, faithfully facing death after the pattern of our Savior as well. Our culture really doesn't know how to handle or talk about death. Um, and so you get some bizarre, even contradictory um, handling of the topic. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was... I took my kids to the YMCA in Lafayette to skate at the ice rink there. And um, as we were walking in, maybe they'll remember this, uh, Jake said, what is that? And what he was looking at was uh, the seasonal decorations that the YMCA had laid out in their lawn, which consisted of severed bloody limbs and a severed head with uh, ligaments and veins hanging out and blood pouring out of the eyes. Uh, This is what the YMCA had laid out for children to see as they come in. Of course, our neighbors have similar things in their yards, ghosts, witches, tombstones, hands reaching out of the ground, and so on. These displays, celebrations of death, of fear, 
Uh, ours is a culture obsessed with death and on TV and Halloween, and yet refuses to wrestle with it honestly. Uh, avoids the topic of actual death. It, it can bleed into the church in our thinking when we, when we adopt that and think that being sad is bad and that death is beautiful, death is natural, as you hear people say sometimes in the, in the the paradox of the Christian life, we face death as grievous, as the last great enemy, as totally unnatural. And yet also we face it with faith. We face an understanding it's not a judgment from God on us. It's not an ultimate end. We face it as, in a sense, our final calling. A culminating calling of our Savior to, to faithfulness and to trust and to hope. We've been studying together the last several weeks. Jesus Faithful dying is dying well, perfectly, in perfect faith uh, in the last few weeks. In his majestic calm through all of it, his unflinching love and concern for others all around him through the whole thing, uh, his faith in his Father. He received his death as a calling from the Father. And as, as Hebrews memorably, memorably says, for the joy set before him, he endured. Uh, endured the cross. And I simply want to put his example in front of us. And again, it's not his example uh, that's primary when studying the cross. That's why last week came before this week. Uh, It's Jesus' sacrifice for sin in your place, purchasing life for you that's primary. But his example is also vital and powerful. Uh, Death is and will be your calling and my calling sometime. Uh, Jesus finished well. It was how Jesus finished that the the centurion and the criminal were converted in watching him, watching how he died. Finishing and dying well will be one of your and one of my greatest opportunities for witness whenever we're called to that. We're called to finishing well for the joy set before us. Again, I'll quote Os Guinness here. After a lifetime of journeying, we are arriving home. After all the years of hearing only the voice, we are about to see the face and feel the arms. The caller is our father, and the last call is the call home. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan describes death, though not describing death as beautiful, but describes it beautifully as a call to cross the river to the city of your father. And be welcomed into his arms. We could all probably give examples that God has given to us of this. Our brother Evan comes to mind in terms of the call to finish well in faith and in hope. Recently reading of a faithful German believer who was imprisoned and then executed ultimately by the Nazis just a couple, couple, year, a couple weeks before the war ended, World War II. Helmuth von Moltke was his name. Um, he, he was kind of a big deal in Germany, but he was imprisoned for a long time. He wrote to his wife from prison just, just before his ex- execution. It was scheduled for the next day. He wrote, Dear heart, my life is finished. This doesn't alter the fact that I would gladly go on living, that I would gladly accompany you a bit further on this earth. But then I would need a new task for God. The task for which he made me is done. Great example, 
call to live out the paradox of this life with the example of Jesus before us. I want to just close with a further reflection of of Chesterton on on Christian paradox. He He gave many examples in his writing. This one is on courage, the paradox of courage that applies to Uh, the point I'm trying to make here. He says, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that would lose his life will save it is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. The paradox is the whole principle of courage. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strong carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to his life, for then he would be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. May we live for Christ with a readiness to die, because we've been raised with him already. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, once again, we uh, thank you for your word, and we uh, thank you for this central piece of, of your word in describing the faithfulness and the death of Christ for us. And we ask again that you would give us his heart, his faithfulness, and his willingness his witness. Uh, Let it be a part of our lives, a part of our thinking uh, this week and weeks and years to come, whatever you uh, call us to suffer for him and with him. We pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.